morning and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome everyone here this morning. Today, as I think everyone in this room knows, kicks off a very critical week for the U.S.-India bilateral relationship, as Prime Minister Modi is here in Washington for his first meeting with President Trump. Here at Hudson Institute, we're delighted to host this special event focused on the future of the U.S.-India commercial partnership, and we're also grateful to our friends at C-SPAN for covering this event live. U.S.-India bilateral trade stands at an estimated $114.8 billion, less than one-fifth of the U.S.-China's $648 billion bilateral trade relationship. India is America's ninth largest supplier of imported goods and its 18th largest export market. For the world's first and the world's sixth largest economies, respectively, we at Hudson Institute believe that there is significant room for growth. The U.S.-India relationship is an important one to us here at Hudson Institute. Our South Asia program, which is uh, directed by former Ambassador Hussein Haqqani, has been active on the U.S.-India trade relationship, the U.S.-India defense relationship, and uh, the U.S.-India-Japan trilateral relationship for some time now. I was very fortunate to be honored to be included in the briefing with uh, Prime Minister Modi at Blair House during his last visit to Washington. We're honored today to have the co-chairman of the Congressional Caucus on India, Representative George Holding of North Carolina, here with us to offer keynote remarks. And I'll introduce him momentarily. We also have a, uh, an excellent panel <clears throat> moderated by uh, Ambassador Haqqani, uh, who will be joined by Prachush Kumar, the president of Boeing India, Danny O'Brien, the government relations leader for transportation at General Electric, James Shapiro, the resident director in North America at Tata Sons, and A. Amarnath, the vice president, senior vice president at Wipro. Allow me now to introduce uh, Congressman Holding. Congressman Holding grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, attended Wake Forest University, where he earned his degrees in both classics and law. He clerked for U.S. District Judge Terrence Boyle, and then uh, practiced law before becoming the U.S. Attorney for North Carolina. He was, uh, he is the representative for North Carolina's 13th Congressional District. He was sworn in on January 2017 and he serves on the uh, Ways and Means Committee. And most importantly, for our purposes, he is the co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on India. So without any further ado, allow me to have the honor of introducing uh, Representative Holding. Thank you very much. Um, it's a very warm welcome, and I appreciate the opportunity to offer some remarks. Um, it's kind of odd to be here at a, with a panel of folks who are actual experts on the U.S.-India relations and how we can foster deeper economic bonds between our two great democracies. Uh, members of Congress think we're experts on everything, so um, you'll just have to bear with me. 
Um, I'd especially like to thank both the Hudson Institute and the Confederation of Indian Industry for hosting today's proceedings. Um, it's the partnership between India and the United States um, is incredibly important, so it's good to see a great turnout today of folks who are like-minded. Now, for me, seeking ways to expand the U.S.-India relationship always begins with a dialogue. And I'll be the first to admit that some of these conversations are not always easy. Uh, they require healthy doses of honesty from both sides. When I was in India earlier this year, I believe for the fourth time, uh, there was honesty on the part of concerns about H-1B visas. Um, last week in the Ways and Means Committee, we had a hearing with the Trade Ambassador, and there were some frank discussions about tariffs on tree nuts and price controls on medical devices. Uh, but I firmly believe that these are conversations that we have to have as they will cement what I believe will be the defining relationship between our two countries for the 21st century. Now, before I forget, begin, I'm sure there's some questions amongst you all about why a member of Congress from North Carolina um, is the co-chair of the India Caucus and how that same member, myself, got asked to give these remarks today. Um, so here's a marker for your guidance. Uh, all politics is local. And in my constituency, the around Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, uh, I'm proud to represent over 20,000 Indian Americans. Um, as an aside, upwards of 90% of the hotel rooms in North Carolina are owned by Indian Americans. Now, ahead of the Chief Minister Modi's run for higher office, um, I saw a groundswell of support in my district, um, not only for his candidacy, but for reinvigorating U.S.-India relations. And I'm talking about Indian Americans who had never been involved in the political process in the United States. He had never turned out to an event or sought out a candidate or a representative. Um, but because they were interested in Modi becoming prime minister and they're interested in this country having a better relationship with their mother country, it was through them and talking about them about their desire for a robust bilateral relationship um, that I find my, found myself very interested in the U.S.-India policy. So I quickly realized um, the incredible potential that, and that existed uh, for an enduring partnership between um, the oldest democracy and the largest democracy. And I know the oldest, largest talking point is one that gets tossed around uh, a great deal but I've always believed it's instructive to examine what is at the core of the U.S.-India relations. And that, is, of course, is our shared values, which are reflected by our belief in democracy. And it's the mutual recognition and respect for these shared values and the people-to-people -people connections maintained by the Indian American community that I believe draw so many members of Congress to be such strong supporters of the bilateral uh, relationship. The India Caucus is one of the largest caucuses in Congress and is relatively active in comparison to other caucuses. As the Prime Minister and the President conclude their first ever in-person meeting, I'm very bullish on the future of our relationship. Now, I believe we can build off of the strong gains that we've witnessed over the course of the last few years and continue our progress forward. And this visit should allow each leader, who are, who are both great 
personalities to reinforce why this relationship matters to both sides of the equation, but also each leader can express any concerns they might have candidly man-to-man. And over the course of the Trump-Muddy era, there will be periods of uncertainty, I'm sure, just as there are periods of uncertainty in any relationship, and perhaps even doubt about certain policies and views. But our two leaders, I believe, will find significant areas of cooperation, from enhanced security coordination to increased energy collaboration and more engagement on the economic front. I believe we find ourselves well positioned to seize many of these opportunities. But regardless, it's important to remember that for many years, Congress has been on the front lines of driving the U.S.-India relationship forward. And I think it will be even more so because of the diaspora's engagement uh, with members of Congress. And I can publicly confirm today for you all that we have no intention of taking our foot off the gas as far as driving this relationship. Now, reflecting on just the time during which I've had the privilege of um, being the co-chair of the House India Caucus, I feel we've made a tremendous stride in a number of areas. And that's not to say that we don't have a lot more work to do, but this is an undertaking worthy of extraordinary effort from both sides of the equation. You know, I struggle when I think of a better way we can strengthen the U.S.-India relationship than by bolstering our business-to-business ties. Politics is one thing which has ebbs and flows, but business ties uh, endure. Trading opportunities, once established, will endure. And aside from economic benefits, it will be these relationships with great American and great Indian companies, large companies and small companies, that will help us weather all the political travails that inevitably arise. And as it stands right now, there's significant room for growth between the world's largest and the six largest economies. Total trade of goods and services between the U.S. and India, I think that we all know the numbers, it's just south of $115 billion a year. And, but however, India is only our ninth largest trading partner. And our trade deficits with respect to both goods and services with India remain for some unnecessarily high, especially as India continues its exceptional growth. But I look at these figures and ponder what else can be done to further develop our economic bonds. So as a member of the Trade Subcommittee on the Wade Sabines Committee, I can tell you on the trade front, our nations are certainly no strangers to some good discourse, as I mentioned earlier, with one another um, at the WTO, and hope springs eternal for continuation of earnest talks on a bilateral investment treaty, which has been on the back burner for a while, but which a number of us are urging to get back onto the front burner. From the companies that I speak with, any trade or investment agreement would be more than welcome to get capital off the sidelines from all the relevant companies and by giving investors additional confidence uh, that it's a good place to place their money. This would also have the added benefit of paving the way for follow-on agreements con concerning a variety of sectors and industries. Specifically, in the technology and innovative space, I believe we have an incredible opportunity to further integrate our economies, companies, and even our governments. I'm thinking cybersecurity. It will be the innovation economy that will allow the U.S. and India to jointly develop the solutions required to, to overcome challenges 
right over the horizon by unleashing the most, the world's most innovative companies. Whether you're world's most innovative companies, whether you're in Silicon Valley or Bangalore, the, these are staffed with incredibly creative people and talented workforces. And this collaboration will also help further assist the Prime Minister in achieving and realizing his visions for programs such as Digital India and, Smart, and the Smart Cities Initiative, efforts the United States government should also continue to robustly support with its expertise and resources. And if we're going to be able to foster an ecosystem that enables the U.S. and India to become even better partners in technology and the innovative spaces, I believe we can realize even greater business and economic synergies. Now, we all know about the companies that have driven this impressive growth, a number of which, almost all of which, or everyone on this panel is, is a part of those companies, I believe. But there's also such great potential for technology and innovative partnerships in the defense and energy sectors, um, some of which are already being realized. The, um, I was proud last year, uh, during the last Congress, to author a language that was signed into law that, among other things, will help bolster the abilities of our two governments and defense industries to develop and share cutting-edge defense technology. This is the language that we had put into the NDAA. Uh, I was certainly, it was certainly my aim uh, to encourage additional co-production and co-development initiatives that help us grow businesses, business opportunities, and achieve strategic objectives along the way. The, in my visit to India earlier this year, uh, I was with uh, Chairman Goodlatte of the Judiciary Committee, and we had lots of good discussions on how to have a synergy between making India and America, for America first and believe that the two um, philosophies can actually work very well together. So this is a positive step, and I believe for the strategic partnership to go further, we need to see this fully realized in the business-to-business -business space, not just in the sharing or transfer transferring of defense technologies between the governments. But further, I expect we also will, we will also continue to see increasing cooperation in cybersecurity front, which I know is in the minds of everyone here today. The cybersecurity challenges like those in the Indian Ocean, for example, are the ones we share together and we must tackle together. On the energy front, the United States has a significant opportunity to help India meet its rapidly growing demand for stable and affordable energy through unleashing of new technologies that make the extraction and export of shale oil and natural gas affordable an affordable reality. If my uh, colleague Pete Olson, who's a very active member of the India Caucus here today, he would immediately start extolling the virtues of the um, natural gas terminal in Houston, Texas, which I believe is online now. But in the meantime, we also need to be prepared to further expand our collaborative work in the renewable energy sector, as these technologies will only increasingly become more important to the energy mix of both of our nations. And all of this, like our bilateral trading relationship and defense cooperation, stands to contribute to the economic success of our, both, both of our countries. But more importantly, this type of cooperation stands to bring our two nations closer together, which always must be the shared objective at the end of the day. Everything we do must be viewed in the lens of deepening and enriching the critical relationship for both nations and both of our peoples. The United States has a natural partner in India.
and India as a very natural partner in the United States. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us who are engaged on this issue and engaged on furthering the bilateral relationship, all of us that believe um, in the future that this will be a defining relationship for the 21st century, uh, that we keep working hard to keep progress and momentum going forward. And with that, I thank you all very much. Good afternoon. I'm Hussein Haqqani. Uh, I'm the director for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, we are grateful for the cooperation that we have received and the partnership of the Confederation of Indian Industry. Uh, and I would like to thank, before we get started, uh, Dr. Aparna Pandey uh, from the Hudson Institute and Sumani Dash from the CII for putting uh, together uh, this panel. Uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Narendra Modi are going to be meeting today. And uh, we already heard the congressman refer to the U.S.-India relationship as the defining partnership of the 21st century. It's a term that has been used by successive uh, presidents of the U.S. in the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, in his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this morning, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has spoken of the convergence of interests and values between the United States and India. But we all know that uh, uh, while values and uh, interests uh, are a uh, conceptual framework, at the end of the day, relationships between nations also have to be uh, measured, and they are often measured uh, in terms of how well they do in commercial uh, uh, partnership and in trade and industry which is why we have brought this panel to you today. Uh, the United States is India's uh, second largest bilateral trading partner in goods, and India is the United States' ninth largest bilateral trading partner in goods. Uh, bilateral uh, trade in goods and services between the United States and India stands at an estimated $114 billion. Uh, around 100 Indian companies currently operate in the United States and have created uh, close to 100,000 jobs here. They have invested more than $15 billion, and U.S. companies have invested $28 billion in India just in the last three years. The U.S., just to give you a measure of how things are moving, the U.S.-India defense uh, equipment trade uh, was only $200 million in the year 2000. Today it stands at about $15 billion with potential for much more. Uh, but as the world's largest and the sixth largest economy, there is considerable room for further growth. And the World Bank annual report for 2017 on the ease of doing business globally ranked India at 130 out of 190 countries. If there was greater ease of doing business in India, perhaps even more American companies would head to India. Uh, there are other factors uh, 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 which have held back the relationship. In the area of defense, for example, uh, one of the factors has been uh, American uh, rules and regulations on export controls and the Indian desire for uh, not being dependent purely on defense equipment purchases, but also to be able to make things in India. So where do things stand? Where 
are we going to see this relationship go forward? Uh, innovation fueling the U.S.-India commercial partnership is uh, the topic of our conversation, and we have an excellent panel today represent, uh, with representatives from all of those who can be identified as the major uh, players in the field of innovation and expansion of commercial ties between the United States and India. Uh, we have uh, Danny O'Brien from General Electric. Um, he is the government relations leader for GE Transportation. Uh, in this capacity, he oversees GE's global engagement on commercial and public policy issues. Uh, he served as a longtime advisor in the U.S. Senator, where he was chief of staff uh, to three senators. Uh, and uh, serving them, he managed the policy, communications, and pol political strategies for these national leaders. And now as a government relations leader for GE, hopefully will be playing a crucial role in the expansion of GE's engagement with India, which is already considerable. Uh, then we have A. Amarnath from Wipro, right, just to my right. Uh, Amarnath serves as senior vice president at Wipro and is based in Silicon Valley in California. He's the leader of Wipro's new age business with focuses on fir firm-wide efforts towards companies in the angel funding stage, growth stage funded by venture capital firms and companies at the pre or post IPO stage that are native to cloud or have a mobile platform. None of this means anything to me because I'm not as technology conversant as most people might be, but I'm sure many of the people who are watching this discussion on C-SPAN will be totally impressed, uh, Amarnath. Amar also leads sales and go-to-market transformation across Wipro. He also carries the responsibility of Wipro's North America business operations, which are expanding, and I will talk about them in just a minute. Um, then we have in the middle uh, James Shapiro, uh, who is the resident director in North America for Tata Sons. Uh, he manages the North American office responsible for representing the Tata Group's interest in assisting group companies in the region in the areas of government affairs, media relations, academic partnerships, sustainability, and business development. And as most of you in this room would probably know, uh, Tatas are likely to be the partners of Lockheed Martin in uh, manufacturing F-16 aircraft. Our fourth speaker is on his way, I'm told. Uh, he is Prat Pratyush Kumar, uh, the president of Boeing India, uh, and he's running late. Uh, I'm sure that that's not in any way a commentary uh, on Boeing planes arriving on time, uh, most of the time. Uh, he, he, he is the vice president of Boeing International, and he also serves as managing director of Boeing Defense India. He's based in New Delhi, and he is Boeing's most senior in-country executive who integrates and advances Boeing's activities in India across its three business units. Before we get started on a discussion, just a very quick rundown on the four companies represented on the panel and their business interests in relation to India. G has doubled its investment in India and delivered $3 billion in economic value over the last five years. New investments are mostly in manufacturing. Uh, they invested $250 million as part of its Indian expansion uh, in 2006. Uh, have a factory, $200 million factory in Pune, India, employs something like 13 to 15,000 people in India. Boeing investments in India include uh, a new factory uh, which, will, uh, which plans for Super Hornet 
fighter aircraft, and it also has an active footprint uh, in India for helicopter production. Uh, Boeing is doubling its sources from India and works with Tata, TAL, and Hindustan uh, Aeronautics, uh, and, it, the, and, and the sourcing is uh, roughly $500 million of uh, parts built in India for Boeing uh, around the world. Uh, also a major employer in India. Wipro, on the other hand, uh, has a very large number of employees in the United States. Half the employees in the United States are locals uh, for Wipro. It has over 150,000 people employed here. So those who think that this relationship, and of course in the political rhetoric that happens a lot, jobs are all going the other way, no. India is actually creating jobs in the United States as well. Uh, Wipro is planning to open new delivery centers in the United States. Um, its biggest geography by revenue in cities such as San Francisco, Atlanta, Dallas, and New Jersey. And it has uh, invested $500 million acquiring a US-based cloud computing company last year. Um, and of course, Tata, a group of companies, have joint ventures with a number of American companies, including Boeing, Starbucks, and Uber. And they employ something like 22,000 people in North America. Um, and they are working currently with Starbucks to expand increase investment into India. So those planning a trip to India in the near future, uh, you can have your uh, soy milk lattes in uh, <coughs> Mumbai and Calcutta as well. Uh, Tata generated $8 billion in the United States in 2008 uh, and over $100 billion worldwide. Enough of the introduction. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, let's start with you, Amar. Uh, and my first question to you is, the first phrase in the title of our conversation today is innovation. Whenever people talk about innovation, it's about technology. It's, uh, a lot of it has to do with information technology. Uh, where do things stand, and where do we see things growing forward? Um, first of all, I'm glad to be here. Um, and just a small correction, I think the 150,000 number that you mentioned, that's a global employee base. Is it? In the United States. Oh, okay. Uh, but, but still having said that... 50% uh, of that is in the United States. 50% of our United States employee base are local. Okay. Um, uh, so innovation. Um, I think, uh, first of all, I think it's good to be on a panel with G and Boeing, uh, two companies that uh, we certainly uh, look up to extremely well inside Wipro. Um, you know, if, if you are a student of innovation, uh, if you have family members who are talking about innovation, if your children who are coming and saying that I want to pursue a career in digital technologies, there's never been a better time uh, to be working in that space than now. Um, we are extremely uh, are proud to be associated with things that are around innovation. And what does innovation mean, just to break it into terms, at least in our industry? Uh, it means uh, digital, uh, it means cybersecurity, uh, it means analytics, uh, it means artificial intelligence, uh, and it means uh, platforms. Um, today, uh, and since particularly I, li I live in uh, Silicon Valley, and you know, I was joking with Cap that you know, by Silicon Valley standards, I'm overdressed today. Um, but uh, today, uh, if you look at innovation, uh, a lot of innovation today globally is emerging uh, from North America. Um, from United States. Um, and we are associated with some of the leaders in that innovation. Uh, today, clients are asking for investments in digital from us. Clients are expecting us to be at the cutting edge of cybersecurity to keep their uh, firewalls safe, 
clients are expecting us to be investing in platforms in order for them to be able to deliver their services, whether it's healthcare uh, or whether it's taking a taxi drive on Uber from a point A to point B. Uh, so what have we done responding to those needs? Uh, we have created uh, a platform innovation center in Tampa, Florida for healthcare. Uh, we have created a design center in Brooklyn, New York, um, addressing companies for whose apps you probably have on your cell phones. Um, we have uh, yeah, invested in cloud application center in Indianapolis. Yeah, whether you are in a Microsoft cloud, Azure cloud, Salesforce cloud, or a Google cloud, uh, chances are that some of those services are being delivered by Wipro employees hired from local universities uh, working from Indianapolis. Uh, if your uh, if your clients, if you're uh, retailing at some of the regular retailers that you shop on or where you earn your points, um, chances are that the cybersecurity of their companies are being uh, uh, operated and monitored through our cyber command center in Atlanta. And so, why are we doing this? Uh, we're doing this because the way technology is getting delivered is changing. Um, there is a lot more, and without getting too technical about it, there's a lot more what we call as DevOps and Agile. And what that means is rapid prototyping and rapid application development. Uh, that means you want to be closer to the clients. You want to be closer to where that solution is going to be delivered. Uh, so it fits uh, our needs. It fits our long-time needs. Um, from a, And I think Ambassador Akhani talked about it. Uh, just in the last calendar 12 months, and I'll try to do this in both US dollars as well as rupee terms for people who are interested in conversions. Uh, for every business day that we were operating last year, we were investing $5 million every day in capital expenditure uh, in North America. Uh, we were hiring uh, last year, a net, net hiring from at least about 14 campuses across North America for computer science graduates. We are going to ramp that up. Uh, this was a turning, and in the next three quarters, uh, next three months, we're going to be entering a turning point where closer to 50% of our North American workforce uh, will be local workforce. Uh, and we're responding to a need, and that's a core business need. We're not responding to a political need. We're not responding to a regulatory need. We're responding to a business need, uh, because that's where the skills are, and that's where projects are. Uh, so uh, innovation is changing in terms of delivery. Uh, innovation is changing in terms of technology, in terms of what needs to be delivered. Innovation is changing in terms of where it needs to be delivered. And right now, um, and those uh, are responsive to us, kind of, uh, you know, reflect on the facts that you just talked about. James, uh, Tata, an icon in India, uh, an icon in South Asia, um, uh, obviously in many, many businesses, uh, multidimensional, um, and definitely bullish on the United States and the U.S.-India partnership. Uh, what is your perception of the current status of U.S.-India commercial uh, relations, and how do you see them uh, evolving? Um, how do you see them actually reaching for the potential? Because each one of us, probably, if we were asked, uh, do you think it has, it is close to its potential? Each one of us will probably say, nowhere near the potential. So, what's holding it back, and how does your company uh, intend to expand uh, at the same time, growing the potential, which has always been a Tata objective? Yeah, thank you, and thanks for the invitation to, to join the panel today. Um, as you won't be surprised, I mean, we don't spend that much time thinking about the politics of it, but we think much more about the, the business opportunity kind of in both directions. And you can see sort of our thinking just by the nature of, of uh, 
the kind of transactions that you mentioned, a few of them. I mean, we are very uh, open and have been quite successful in partnering with major U.S. companies to uh, jointly um, address U Indian market needs, particularly in recent years. Well, you've talked about Starbucks, but we also have um, uh, JVs with other with other international brands, um, and particularly in the aerospace, we've we've uh, have been quite in the press lately in terms of the Lockheed potential Lockheed deal and, and our work with Boeing. Um, on the on the other side, coming into the United States, we we're focused very much. Here. We have twelve companies operating in North America, from IT services very much along the same lines as as Wipro and TCS. Uh, similar kinds of work, but also manufacturing here. We have two steel plants, one in Warren, Ohio, one in uh, Pennsylvania. We have a coffee uh, plant in Mar right down the street in Maryland, 8 o'clock coffee. We have significant R&D and technology uh, investments here in, in North America. And I would say that's really, I mean, one of the reasons I was very interested in joining the panel is that that's really where we see the attraction in the United States is that if you take one example, I mean, Jaguar Land Rover, a major auto company that, that we own through Tata Motors, they now have 100 people working in Portland, Oregon, purely on software and research and uh, an innovation center that they've built there from, from scratch, nothing. 100% local employees, maybe one or two people from the UK who came over to start it. Um, and that is... I think uh, indicative of the kind of, of activity you're going to see where we're also partnering with universities because we see much cutting-edge research here done at U.S. universities, and we want to be closer to that cutting edge, closer to where that work is going on. And to do that, we need to send people here. We need to support that research. We need to invest some time in research centers. We recently maybe read about the investment at Carnegie Mellon to build a a whole new center there uh, to look at self-driving cars and other kind of automation. So those are the kinds of uh, very exciting um, investments we're making in this country, and we see it as very fundamental to the future of the group globally, but here in the United States and in India. Great. Um, Danny, GE, uh, an American icon as well, uh, and uh, uh, definitely in businesses where innovation matters a lot. Uh, so, uh, uh, how do you see innovation uh, in terms of your uh, sort of envisioning of the U.S.-India partnership? And the reason why I say that as, as, a, as an important element is uh, that obviously India sees itself as growing uh, at a faster pace than many other economies in the world, uh, but it does not want to just be a market for products that are manufactured elsewhere and just dumped on India. The way Indians look at it, uh, they see themselves as potential partners. And if they are going to be partners, uh, then the innovation works both ways. Now, if I recall, I actually went to a facility, a GE facility in uh, Bangalore, uh, which focused on, uh, uh, on innovation. Um, and, uh, and I was just wondering if you could share with us um, how much does innovation drive your investments in the India-US relationship. Thanks, Ambassador, and thanks, everybody, for showing up today. GE, as you mentioned, is a 125-year-old company. Our relationship with India has been in place for decades. I think since 2000, we have some very instructive experiences 
to share that, that touch on the point that you just mentioned, and, and, and you mentioned a facility that we have in Bangalore, which is somewhat at the heart of our, our innovation story in India. GE is going in the direction of the industrial internet. That many of you may have seen some of our sort of quirky advertisements on TV over the last year in, in regards to trying to attract young, smart IT experts from the Silicon Valley area to move over a little further east to our, our GE Digital company, which is opened a few years ago. Part of our GE Digital and our innovation push hinges on, is centered on a facility we have in, in Bangalore. And, and I was going to update one number that you mentioned earlier. GE now has 21,000 employees in India, so the trajectory since you last checked has even, has even improved and, and gotten better. But in Bangalore, we have a few thousand engineers, researchers, scientists working hand-in-hand -hand with the research and development programs that we have here in the U.S. Our facility, the John Welch Technology Center in Bangalore, is probably one of our most modern, and it's certainly our most integrated operations where we bring all the different six, seven, eight GE businesses together to develop applications that will serve across the board through something we sometimes call the GE garage. Another way, in other words, a way to access technology in one industry and apply it to another. In India, some of our results that tell the story that, that the ambassador just mentioned are simply, we recently last year opened a new wind farm in India that is using blades, wind blades, turbine blades that were developed in Bangalore. Those blades were developed in Bangalore for the Indian market, but they're in markets all across the globe on every single continent right now. So technology, innovation, collaboration coming out of Bangalore is not only serving the Indian market, it's helping GE in its global reach. In addition, in Bangalore alone, we've had 3,200 contributions for patent applications here in the United States. So GE writ large benefits from the human resources, the energy, the ideas, the intellectual capacity, the dynamism of Bangalore, excuse me, Bangalore in, in India. Not only as we expand our reach around the world, and we're in about 180 countries right now with customers, but we also are active, engaged, resolving issues, coming up with solutions, excuse me, for the Indian market and customers. Quick question before we move on. Uh, 3,200 patent applications uh, for uh, things developed in Bangalore. What percentage is it of GE's overall patent development application in the same time period? That's a good question. I, I don't know the breakdown on it, but I can tell you that these patents span Healthcare, yeah. healthcare products that are used in 70 countries around the globe. India, we have a whole range of accessibility and low price products. Spans, as I mentioned, renewable. We're getting into our GE transportation story, the rail story that we'll, talk, we'll touch on hopefully today. Oil and gas solutions. So almost every single key GE business, and as I said, there are seven or eight of them, have inputs coming out of, out of Bangalore and out of our other facilities in India. Uh, welcome uh, to our uh, uh, panel, uh, uh, Pratyush Kumar, and it's such a pleasure having you join us. You have already been introduced. Thank you. And Sorry a, I'm late. A, a, a small joke has already been made. 
about <laughs> about about the person from Boeing who's supposed to produce uh, aircraft that should land on time being a little later than others, but that was just a joke. Uh, so we'll bring you in into the discussion. Uh, we already shared the info basic sort of statistics about what Boeing is doing in India and with India. I would like you to update us and tell us uh, how do you see the current status of the U.S.-India commercial relationship from Boeing's perspective, and where do you see the few areas of growth? Great. Again, uh, apologies for being late. I got held up in another meeting, but... Uh, uh, you know, if you look at the secular trend of uh, demographic-driven demand for aviation sector, it's unstoppable. In the last three years, we have seen 20-plus uh, percent growth in air traffic in India. If you look forward, uh, it's looking strong, double-digit growth for foreseeable future. Uh, in fact, uh, in today's op-ed, Prime Minister Modi mentioned more than 200 aircraft. Uh, I think that this is a start. Uh, we project that in over the next 20 years, uh, India will buy more than 1850 aircrafts. So we, we certainly see the future is very bright for civil aviation. Uh, from Boeing's perspective, the other side of the equation is also defense, where uh, the trade has gone from almost zero to about seven years ago to 15 billion plus. Uh, and uh, knock on the wood, but we have, uh, we have done pretty okay in that. You know, we have provided pretty compelling platforms to Indian defense services starting with P-8, C-17, Chinook, and Apache helicopters who are under production right now. And uh, we look forward to further partnering with India as the strategic framework has been now published, uh, under which uh, we can perhaps one day make fighters in India. So outlook is strong uh, has, has, and has been built on a strong track record of success over the last, last five years. Uh, how about uh, sourcing from India? Again, uh, you know, we have quadrupled our uh, sourcing from India in the last three years. And uh, if all stays on track, the total sourcing from India for Boeing will cross almost a billion dollars uh, by the end of this year. So uh, that's a significant trend uh, on that. Again, it's driven by competitiveness. It's not just, you know, making India. Making India certainly helps translate the country to, uh, to strategy to the company. But it also helps us become more competitive, and that's why we're doing it. The other part of the equation is uh, innovation. Uh, we, we find lots of opportunities to uh, find pockets of innovation in India. You heard, I heard a little bit of what GE is, uh, was talking about. Uh, certainly we've seen that uh, in spades, and uh, uh, that's one of the reasons we're focusing on doing more work in India. And uh, is there R&D taking place in India for both? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have, uh, we have, we're building a significant R&D presence in the country, in Bangalore. Uh, some of uh, the, the recent innovations, you know, patents that have been filed from there is, is cutting edge. Okay. Well, so, I mean, we don't want to get into the politics of it, but let us just say uh, some people see uh, a difficulty in uh, having, I mean, everybody is upbeat at the political and strategic level, but on commercial and business levels, there are people, I've seen those stories and some articles that say, uh, Prime Minister Modi wants to make in India, President Trump uh, wants to do everything in the United States. Uh, that may cause a bit of a problem, uh, but surely there, there is a win and win, a win-win uh, available here. Uh, what do you people see as the win-win? Let's just go around uh, with everyone. Uh, so, uh, Amar first. Yeah, I, I think uh, there is uh, there is certainly a, a rhetoric 
um, that I think uh, I, uh, I, at least in my day job, I pay less attention to. Um, and then there is work to be done. Um, and from a work to be done context, <clears throat> uh, today we are uh, actually extremely bullish on our ability both to deliver uh, and hire and invest in the United States. Uh, and I talked about it uh, in the beginning in my opening remarks, but just to give you additional examples here, um, you know, on August 1st, we'll be inaugurating an absolutely modern next generation, uh, what we call as an experience 2.0 center um, in North America, um, in Mountain View. Um, and you're welcome to come in and take a visit to the facility. Um, I work from that facility. Um, and and the, uh, our response um, uh, in terms of creating that facility is not about saying, uh, let's figure out a way to make an USA. Uh, it is about saying, uh, we deliver in USA. Our needs are here. Our clients exist here. And our clients are expecting us to be on that cutting edge in order for us to take them to that next generation level. Uh, there are R&D budgets today that are under severe constraints from our client standpoint themselves. I talk to many, many clients, chief digital officers, chief technology officers, who are also scrambling for that investments within their own forums today. Um, and in, in Wipro, they see a partner uh, who's willing to extend uh, their in-house R&D um, in, in our ability to invest. And for us, that's a strategic investment. Uh, it's, it's an investment that's in... Um, that's a multi-million dollar investment that you're making for our clients here in order for them to take some of those technologies in-house uh, to showcase what's the art of possible. Uh, so that's an area of partnership. I mean, we are investing to make our clients successful, and that's an investment that's happening here. Um, and you should continue to make us uh, see that going forward. Uh, we, are, we are about to launch a 400-people delivery center outside of Dallas, Texas, specifically to address credit card processing needs in North America. Uh, we will be working with our clients there. There are lots of cybersecurity needs. Um, there is a lot of needs around emerging technologies such as blockchain. Um, again, I don't want to go too down into the weeds there. Uh, but these are technologies where Wipro is known to be at the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. We want to bring that to the doorstep of our clients, and that innovation is happening here within the shores of the United States. James, same question. I think the, the way I would answer it is that, you know, we, we need more trade, not less trade. I mean, we, we see most of our companies involved in very deeply in global supply chains. You know, we import, we export from both India and the U.S. and many third countries. We need a, a kind of predictable, open trading system where we can continue to do that. Because products are getting more complicated, not less complicated. It's not possible to always just make the entire, and you can see it just from some of the joint ventures we've already talked about. It's not practical, it's not feasible to make everything in one country. You're going to have to see, and, and we've already run into this in terms of some of the discussions about NAFTA. I mean, when they're tracking things that go back and forth the border to Mexico in the process of getting made maybe six or seven times. Um, the same thing is true uh, globally, and uh, particularly when they're, you know, not, when they're relatively easy to transport. Um, so I think that, you know, our interest is, is to continue to see that, uh, that system be strengthened and uh, I think that's possible, and, and both countries can see that this is that, that expanding trade between the two countries is really is really where the relationship has to go. And Daniel O'Brien, do you see a challenge in sort of you know 
where are the jobs being created? There will always be some politician who will stand up and say, hey, not enough jobs being created in India as a result of this partnership. Or there will be somebody in America who will say, hey, jobs are going abroad. But very frankly, I think James did say that the global supply chains are a reality and, uh, and every, everybody kind of benefits, even if in a micro sense they might not be seen as such. Where do you stand on that? So absolutely. I, I think everybody who's gathered here today is wanting to talk about India, the U.S. commercial relationship beyond the top headlines. Good. And to drill down a little bit and do some hard thinking about what this relationship relies on. And as I mentioned earlier and shared the story of our Jack Welch Technology Center in Bangalore, the patents, the intellectual contribution that we receive on, helps incredibly in terms of that ledger of benefits to GE. GE is a pro-free trade company. We're in about 180 countries. About half of our revenues come from abroad. So we, as James just said, we embrace free trade. We see the benefits playing out every single day in communities across this country. As it relates specifically to India, there, the, the technology contributions can come from wind farms, they can come from manufacturing side of GE transportation, our rail business. We just now are delivering the process of delivering 100 locomotives to Indian railways. And localization is the key word here more so than outsourcing. Localization is something where GE is required by Make in India, but also in a, by a philosophy of wanting to get close to our customers. And Indian Railways is this massive, tremendous industrial transportation infrastructure company. And there is no way in 2017, 2018, GE could presume to meet Indian Railways needs by, by producing and remaining isolated or somewhat uh, in, in a silo here in the U.S. You know what the Indian Railways We means. have to be close to our customers. There's too much competition of products out there. There's too much high expectation, understandably and necessarily, that we need to be wedded hip to hip with our customers. And so we've got to go local and we've got to stay close to our customers. And that plays in both directions. So, so to, just so I understand, so 100 locomotives, uh, I mean, in terms of the number of locomotives you make generally, how much is that? Here's, here's where we go. So 100 locomotives being manufactured out of the United States is the first wave of this of this initiative. We have a commitment to make 1,000 locomotives. them in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania I'm not That's correct. Yeah, I know something about these locomotives because if you remember, there was a big thing about Pakistan buying them when I was ambassador, so I, I remember correct. some of that. Correct. So 1,000 locomotives in total over the next 10 years is GE's commitment to Indian Railways. Indian Railways is a partner in a JV. So... Lots of synergy in terms of... A locomotive is a lot of lo locomotives as locomotive manufacturing goes, right? Pardon me? A thousand locomotives is a lot of locomotives in terms it's of... It's the biggest deal that GE's signed in, in, in recent history. It, it, took, it took me three questions to sorry, get... Sorry, to sorry, that. sorry yeah. to get to... I was going to get there, but I just needed to drag this out a little bit. Let's keep everybody interested, but... Uh, okay. It is the biggest deal okay. that GE has had on the transportation. Yeah, so now that I'm being put to the task here. $2.3 billion deal GE signed a year and a half ago with Indian Railways, a joint venture, as I mentioned, to deliver a thousand locomotives. Ratish, I understand, knows this, this deal very well because he worked on it in a, in a different capacity in the past. But we are committed to delivering a thousand. The first 100 come out of the United States, and then there's a progressive localization schedule as it moves forward. But as you talk about that, that 
potential conflict or the tension between localization, making India versus making the U.S., the reality is the technology and a lot of the key components as you move toward increased localization in India still emanates in Erie, Pennsylvania or Grove City, Pennsylvania comes out of our research and development operations in upper state New York or the combined research and development between New York and Bangalore. And the very fact that the Indians are buying those locomotives actually keeps the guys in area, et cetera, in business, Absolutely. which they wouldn't be because they wouldn't be manufacturing for anybody else unless somebody else is ordering them. So that's, it's, that's an important It's point. an important part of the but, uh In the aviation sector, uh, challenges, difficulties in this sort of are any potential tension or you see that a much smoother ride than the other sectors? Well, no more challenges or no more smoother ride than any other sector. Uh, I would say, uh, as has been said before. A tremendous growth potential. Yeah, it, it's, it's not a, I mean, from a make in India perspective and manufacturing focus in the US perspective, we don't see it's a zero-sum game. Right. It's, it's expanding the pie, just as you heard the GE locomotive example. Uh, you know, if the pie is growing that tremendously, Participating, it creates jobs here, and it helps create jobs in India, which is a good, positive thing. And, and jobs will be created here as well, because absolutely. you're manufacturing them here in Seattle. Seattle or St. Louis or, or Mesa or Philadelphia, wherever where our factories are. The second part of the equation is that the reality of this is a competitive world. If we don't participate, somebody else will, right? So rather we keep these jobs in the U.S. or... Let them ship it to Japan, uh, to to let's say other places like Russia or 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 France, who would be the alternative suppliers. So I, I think you know the reality of this is that this is uh, the growing demand, the growing pie in India creates opportunities in the U.S. as well as India. Okay, so the rising tide floats all boats. Um, job creation and automation. There's always some some people who worry about automation, but we are, I mean, automation is there to stay. Uh, in each one of your sectors, how do you see that playing out? Innovation will necessarily lead to greater automation or uh, some level of greater automation. Um, does that affect uh, job creation or does that just alter the nature of the jobs and a new, a new kind of job is created? It's only a question of retraining people and. A, and, and getting them to have different kind of skills. Um, so let's begin again with you, Amar. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think this is a topic that we deal with almost on a daily basis. Uh, and I think there are two caveats here. Uh, one is uh, automation is here to stay and automation is here to expand. Uh, I think, um, you know, if I were to ask you saying, are you still wanting to call your cab using a call center model and pick up and dial a 1-800 toll-free number, uh, I mean, you'll all be, um, uh, you know, saying in what era am I talking about? Is there anybody who still does that because they have a moral or other objection to using the uh, car sharing, ride sharing services that are available on your iPhones? Okay, okay. So there's two people like that. Okay, that's that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, you probably don't take that many cabs as as, as some of us do to, and get it, but we'll talk to you as well and hear your perspective in a bit. Okay, go on. But but, but automation, uh, as I said, it's here to stay. From a pure as a tech player, uh, as people who have been in um, IT and business process services, uh, I mean, we have seen waves. Uh, there was a uh, you know when I was learning computer science in college, we were still talking about mainframes. 
uh, and people said, oh my God, mainframes are going to disappear. Now what's going to happen to all the jobs? And then we had client server technologies. And client server came and then said, how are we going to retrain all the mainframe guys? And we had severe shortage of client server people. We couldn't hire enough. And then we had, uh, you know, web technologies. And then, um, you know, you have uh, e-commerce. And then you have digital. I think uh, things have happened. Uh, and it has never led to a scary future. Uh, it has led to expanding the pie. It has led to expanding of the industry. And it has made things easier in terms of ordering, expanding, delivering, um, and uh, producing. Um, and from a, and AI is just a component of that right now. Um, and I think to AI being artificial AI being artificial intelligence. Um, and there is a lot more going on there in terms of the kind of skills that it needs. It needs a lot more cognitive skill. There are people in neurosciences that are needed. There are people in big data analytics. Um, there are innovations that are happening at high school level that I was yesterday at a high school fair in Silicon Valley, and it was amazing what's happening out there. Uh, uh, but the point is, I think AI is here to stay. I think there are some jobs that will get disrupted. There are many other jobs that will get um, uh, created. Uh, but that's a part of the way we've all uh, lived with together. Uh, and I think it will, uh, and for the, as I said in the beginning remarks, there is no, there is no better time than now in terms of being te uh, excited about technology. Uh, and some of that we are seeing in terms of the kind of skills that we're hiring, some of the trainings that we're launching right now here in North America. And there are some of the challenges that universities are right now having in terms of keeping up pace of delivering these kind of skills to the industry right now. And but net net, it's a positive game. And India and the United States are partners in that innovation game for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think that's the biggest driver for us from our clients in North America today. James? Well, you know, I also remain very optimistic about the ability of technology to, to, to you know, transform the future in ways that we can't predict, and it's going to be on balance positive. But I, you have to acknowledge that there's a mismatch between some of the skills that we have, both in the U.S. and in India, and some of the jobs that will become available or that are going to expand because of all this technology change. So, I mean, this is a clear focus of, of us in, in both in India in terms of skilling, skilling uh, needs and even in the United States in terms of investments by companies like TCS in, uh, in, in STEM education and really trying to partner on scale with, with companies like Discovery to influence teaching of STEM skills in public schools and training teachers and how do we change the way thinking is going on in terms of quantitative uh, skills. Because I think it's, while there are, there will be, what's needed are people that can, can, can think and think creatively. And uh, that creative element is where we need to, you know, focus our, our education because the routine tasks will become automated, and we don't need, you know, some of the programming that was done by by hundreds of people at uh, Wipro and TCS doesn't need to be done by as many people now because some of those simple basic stuff can be automated. So that we're moving up the, the food chain in terms of what what do the people need? Well, they need cutting edge skills in in AI and cutting edge skills in in other areas that didn't exist ten years ago. And so that's where the investment needs to be made. So I think if we continue to make those investments, then we will will be uh, in better shape. Uh, Danny? Similar comments. High-skilled workers are key to GE and are in, in large part a, a sector of the workforce that, that we can't almost fully 
adequately addressed here from the U.S. workforce. So I hate talking about uh, automation and workforce. Sometimes it sounds a little academic when we're talking about people's lives and, and coming up with the right solutions for the right transitions to new economies and inevitable change. And it is inevitable. So uh, GE as a company has a very, very strong focus on the STEM uh, programs in, in public schools and around the United States. And, and the bottom line is we need high-skilled workers. Yes, there is some of that churn that is, that is eliminating manufacturing jobs, possibly here in the U.S., but at the same time, we see new jobs being replaced and we see them as high-paid, GE, good GE jobs around which communities can develop and, and build. No, I'll echo the uh, same sentiments. I think uh, as you look towards uh, the future of aviation and aerospace, autonomy is going to be a fact of life. You know, so automation is going to be there. Uh, does it take jobs away? Not necessarily. As you rightly said, it requires new skill sets. You got to have a next generation of artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data analytics folks trying to support that. And uh, we have to evolve, and we're committed to that. Okay. So my final question before I open it to the floor, um, President Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi, President Trump meeting, Everybody talking about this is going to be the beginning uh, of the process of creating the defining partnership for the 21st century. Um, each one of you gets a few minutes with both of them just before they decide on a kind of a bilateral agreement on what will be the framework of this relationship moving forward. And you are, of course, company people, so you have to advance the interests of your company as much as anything else. You're not in the business of the business I am in, which is always talking about big picture stuff and never having to get into the nitty gritty. So you have to say something that is very relevant to what your business interests are, or your company's business interests are. What would be your ask of Prime Minister Modi and President Trump as the US and India formulate this longer term partnership, multi-dimensional partnership for the future? Uh, let's start it from the other end. Well, I would say uh, the, the first thing is convergence, which we've seen and heard today. I mean, that's the foundation for everything that can be done and realize the full potential of this partnership. Uh, so that convergence has to translate in terms of, uh, you, know, you know, Indian side having to work, uh, to continue working towards improving ease of doing business. A lot has been done. You know, GST is a good example of that. But uh, it's, it's, it's a work which is still in progress. So my ask from Prime Minister Modi will be keep at it, keep go keep Move from 130 out of 190 to maybe that's right. the top 10. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Uh, yeah. If at least top 50, if not top 10, that will be progress. In, in, in doing ease of business. Okay. Fair enough. And, uh, and my ask from President Trump would be that this is don't look at it from a zero-sum game lens. It, it's a win-win opportunity. If you grow the pie, there's a win for America in there. Good. Danny? Similar, I would say, from Prime Minister Modi. Oh, you guys agree too much. That's not a good well, panel. You know that. There's, there's a, lot, a lot of good ideas coming out yeah. here. So from, President, from Prime Minister Modi, I would say it's, it's, we certainly recognize his commitment to, to modernizing India's infrastructure. And from a GE perspective, obviously, we, we see lots of opportunities there across many different industries. And we think it's uh, good for business. We think it's good for uh, India. 
Indians, the economy, the environment. We see a lot of positive ways that we think we can bring solutions to improving life in India and leveraging the tremendous assets that India have. India, India offers our company. And on, in terms of President Trump, I think it is uh, would be a suggestion to remain open to free trade and look deep into the advantages that are gener generated in this global economy on both sides of any borders. James? Well, since the panel's on innovation, I'm going to end with an innovation note, which is that, look, um, both countries are blessed with world-class educational institutions. And, and my personal view is that we, we will see innovation coming out of these educational institutions that can help transform the industries that we're in in terms of you know, smart agriculture, health, well-being, energy, all kind. you know, brand new industries that are really going to transform the, 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 the way our company operates, and I know many other companies as well. So what more can we do uh, to expand the opportunity for exchanges between these universities, investments in, in university research going in both directions, uh, because these really are the engines of, of innovation? Uh, I think, again, I, I'll wear a very uh, information technology hat here. I think from a Prime Minister Modi's standpoint, we've been on record basically saying that the government can do a lot in terms of uh, infrastructure uh, that can manifest itself in telecoms, roads, uh, just um, uh, and commute times. Uh, but I think uh, the government is absolutely putting a, a lot of emphasis on that, uh, and I think uh, that's that's going to be a ask of uh, many of us. As far as uh, uh, President Trump is concerned, I think uh, I would probably say that information technology and the collaboration between India and U.S. is actually one of the brightest spots to shine spotlight on. This is an area that where I think both countries have done tremendously well. I think this is an area to focus on and let things be. Things have worked in spite and despite of uh, how things, uh, everything else has panned out in the past. And I think this is one area where I think the B2B collaborations uh, have actually been uh, fantastic. Uh, the second comment that I would say is really in, uh, in our dramatically more increased investments in the new generation of STEM skills. And I think this is uh, there is a lot of debate and forums that have been contributed to this topic. Uh, I think the time of action is now. And I think uh, if those skills aren't existing, then a lot of our competitive uh, you know, uh, positioning will go away as a country. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a great spot to be investing in in North America, in, in the United States. And China's experience uh, teaches us all because, you know, I was in China way back in 1980 when China, everybody still went around on a bicycle, uh, how far they have come in 27 years. Uh, so a country with a billion people modernizing uh, can create many, many opportunities for everyone, double-digit uh, uh, economic growth. And basically that, uh, uh, in fact, right now, uh, uh, India and China are the two fastest growing economies in the world. And India could overtake at least the pace of annual growth, if nothing else, uh, in, in a short time if, if, if this, uh, 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 the environmental changes that you talk about, Pratish, uh, ma uh, materialize. Okay, folks, we are ready to take questions from you all. Um, Comments, not so much, but if you can, if you can, if you can make short comments, you are welcome. Uh, the mic will be brought around to you after you've raised your hand, and I've identified you. So, uh, those who want to ask questions of the panel, 
or make comments on the panel's comments. Uh, right there, first. And please speak in the mic because so that at least your sound can be on the tape, if not your visual. Thank you. David Roman from an Arizona startup. Interested in aviation education and technology. Question is, can you give us a little bit more of an idea on how you recommend we go about forming these collaborations in schools, uh, how the communi community can do their part to step up and partner with you? Who wants to take that question? James? <laughs> was it? Was it to me, the question? It was, it was to all oh. four of you. Okay. Whoever wants to answer. Uh, uh, I'll probably go answer, first. Uh, to. And, uh, um, and you said you're from a startup. Um, um, today, you know, I, think, I think the world looks at Silicon Valley. Uh, and I think in my personal view is to replicate the Silicon Valley uh, ecosystem is uh, probably next to impossible. The, uh, it's just so unique, and it has so much of dynamism to it. It's just unbelievable. But having said that, there are some phenomenal collaborations between startups and the ecosystem and universities that are emerging in North America today. Uh, and I saw that in evidence in Austin, uh, where there are fantastic investments around just big data and analytics. There are uh, fantastic innovations happening in New York City around what I call as fintech. Uh, there is fantastic investments and collaboration between universities and Boston and companies around biotech. So I think the next generation of uh, you know skill development and collaboration is going to be around focus, uh, and 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 picking themes for cities to develop uh, is I think a great idea uh, because otherwise there will be just too much of overcrowding and lack of focus. And this is something that we are encouraging our uh, our clients to do, and we are a part of such ecosystems in at least three different cities in the U.S. right now. Uh, did you want to say something, uh, Pratish? Anybody else? No, I was just going to say, since you're interested in aviation and, uh, you know, education in that front, uh, listen, uh, there are real and clear and present opportunities, especially in India, you know, where they're acquiring about 100 aircraft a year, and they don't have enough trained maintenance engineers. They don't have enough trained pilots. They don't have enough trained crew. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of demand. We have to figure out the right way to partner there and to create op openings. I think that's the way to, the mantra is partnership with the local uh, companies. So right here. Just, just yeah. add one point here. Yeah, sure. From the GE perspective, the individual companies have their own programs as it relates to STEM. Employees actually spend time in the local schools working with students through some of the curricula, et cetera, and there's financial contributions as well. Uh, and we also have a focus on trying to bring women into the uh, traditional engineering environment. Good. Hi, I'm Mike Nelson. I represent Cloudflare here in Washington. We're a startup in San Francisco. We do web security, and we have three data centers in India, as well as more than 100 elsewhere. <clears throat> I'm very glad cybersecurity was mentioned. I'm even more glad that the ease of doing business or the inability to do business in India was mentioned, because in, in our area, um, we've seen very contradictory messages coming out of the Telecommunications Regulatory Authority of India. Um, I've been working in this area for 20 years, and I've seen documents where in one paragraph it says something that sounds like WIPRO wrote it, let the market do, decide, let everything happen, and then two paragraphs later it says, this is so important, the cloud, the Internet of Things, we must plan it, we must regulate it, we must control it. So the, the document itself is inconsistent. So the question, perhaps for Mr. O'Brien or anyone else who wants to comment, 
How do you suggest a startup, either an Indian startup or an American startup trying to go into India, make sense of this very un inconsistent, uneven regulatory environment? So, so I don't, I don't want to put Pratesh on the spot here, but I bet you, you have a lot more perspective than I do. But I would say our recent GE experience with, with our rail endeavor has been one where, with Prime Minister Modi's buy-in, we prepared for the whole regulatory process of building a, a manufacturing facility in the state of Bihar. My colleagues prepared me for unending headaches as it related to getting through the hurdles. We, we identified 47 key regulatory steps we had to go through. And to be honest, to this day, I haven't been called on a one of them. And I think it speaks to Prime Minister Modi's commitment to creating, working with, with the state government, sort of a one-stop shopping on the regulatory side, which has been very beneficial. But that's the perspective of very large but, companies. But, you know. but, 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 but what I get from that, which a small company can do also, is identify what the regulatory hurdles are likely to be like. They identified the 47. Now, as far as the linguistic contradictions are concerned, get a Hinglish dictionary. You know, it's, uh, it's a different. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's just Americans wanting everything to be said and stated the way they are used to. And that's not the case. It may not be as complex as you're saying it, but even if it is, figure out what the complexity is and then negotiate based on that, pointing out the inconsistencies so that they can be removed because they are also a work in progress and so they are moving forward and trying to do it. Uh, I just want to add, uh, you know, especially in fast-moving spaces like cybersecurity, nobody really knows what the regulation should be. So there's a lot of cut and paste going on, right? So if you discover inconsistency, talk to them. Yeah. You know, we, we have seen that if you bring forth a cogent argument to smoothen this inconsistency, you will you'll see it, uh, you know, harmonized. Uh, there's no guarantees that it will be harmonized to your, your satisfaction all the time, but it will be harmonized. And... Please understand that the senior most bureaucrat who's dealing with the subject probably never typed in his life because he had somebody who used to take uh, dictation in, in shorthand when he started out. I mean, I started out as a journalist and I did it on a small portable computer. So I had to educate myself all the way uh, to be able to come to where I am. But if you're in a huge, humongous bureaucracy and growing up, you haven't. And so, therefore, a lot of these things are new. And so some of the questions that you're saying that have been added on while having said free market, that's coming from the younger person. And, hey, but let's put in a qualifier that's coming from the older person in the bureaucracy. But once you can actually sit people down and point it out without being aggressive and, and without being dismissive, usually they do get resolved. The bigger companies do it a little bit more methodically from my experience, because they can put the resources, the smaller ones get angry and frustrated much more quickly. And if they can somehow create uh, collaboration to try and, you know, dealing with the regulatory environment is not just for one company. You guys can pool together, and several of you together can try and deal with uh, getting the regulations worked around and figured out. Uh, and uh, Because the intention is quite clearly what the first part says, which is they really do want to uh, open up. But you must understand that uh, that is not what the bureaucracy was brought up on. And so therefore, their instinct is always to be protective. And this is something I tell uh, international companies all the time. Remember, the defining experience of modern India was the East India Company. 
which came to trade and took over the country. So therefore, there is a reluctance. If you understand that, then you can deal with the psychology a lot better. And then you can trade, then you can do business, and then you can be very successful there. That's my two cents worth. I'll, uh, I'll just give a, uh, I'll probably give a more tactical answer to that. Uh, we have a venture arm where we invest in a whole bunch of uh, startups. Uh, and we are very actively invested in cybersecurity companies in the U.S. who do business globally. Uh, there are st uh, venture capital firms in Silicon Valley who have invested in several cybersecurity firms, who, uh, and their defining question is, you also have exposure to India. Uh, and they will not invest if they don't have the exposure. That means having market penetration into India is essential for them. And and a lot of these firms have also figured this out for you. Uh, so sometimes it doesn't have to be your headache. And there are 10 other firms who have figured this out, uh, which, the, which the funds have then figured it out to make it a little more easy for their portfolio companies. And if you can write to me uh, sometime later, I can introduce, uh, make some introductions for you there. Thank you. Steve Landy, Manchester Trade. Quick response on Uber. Until you compensate the Indian tax, the Indian taxi driver who spent five hundred thousand a million dollars for a medallion up in New York to drive a cab. Until you until you introduce some fair and similar regulation for taxis and Ubers, I think we should go a little bit slow with it. However, the serious question: um, I do a lot of work in trade policy. The love and the love and friendship that you see exhibited here does not exist in trade policy between the U.S. and India. In fact, the WTO has stopped work since 2007 because of a disagreement between India and the U.S. in terms of traditional trade issues, which is very much a shame because this disagreement is preventing the WTO from working on the new issues that you are discussing. My question, or maybe it's a point I'm not sure, is. I go to a lot of a lot of trade policy meetings, private sector, NA, National Association of Manufacturers, Chambers. Your companies are represented, meaning the American companies. But you never know anything about India. Your guys are there talking about trade policy. I assume the same thing happens with CI, with uh, the Confederation of Indian Industries. I do some work with cuts in India. The people who know the trade policy are not the same people who really are involved with this close relationship between you and India, between the U.S. and India. Can you guys maybe address these issues? Because I really want to break the impasse in WTO so we can move into the very issues you are discussing. Thank you very much. Who's brave enough to take that question? I want you to because you're the expert on everything so far, including Ubers. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm not an expert on WTO at all, and you know, frankly, this uh, I can't even comment to that. Uh, and at least in our industry, um, we don't see trade barriers as so much of a threat right now. It could, and it's unnecessary on both sides. And uh, and it's 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 really uh, it's really industry which is a shining bright spot. That's all I'll say. But WTO is certainly beyond my subject matter expertise. But your point is well taken. I think that uh, at people who negotiate trade policy often tend to be uh, people who are not necessarily the ones who actually have first-hand experience of the market and of the business. But then that's the nature of all uh, things that are at, attempts at trying to regulate. And the regulators are not necessarily always the people who are actually running businesses. And so uh, there's room for uh, a new strategy for both sides to, uh, to, to, to discuss trade policy in a context in which the real life experience of people who actually do trade, what do they need, how does that work, 
and then determine trade policy rather than the other way around. Um, there's quite a few questions on this side. We haven't come to this side at all, so let's do it here. Right here, first question, and then right behind. Thank you, Ambassador Akani. I'm Pradeep Kapoor. I was ambassador for India in a few countries. I teach here in Maryland University School of Public Policy. Uh, you know, the I agree with some of the earlier questions and speakers. Uh, there is definitely a long way to go before it becomes a defining partnership of the 21st century. And what are, what are the main reasons for that? Is it the cultural differences between the two sides? If cultural differences between the two sides is also one of the reasons, how can that be bridged? Because on the in the U.S. soil, I see the presence of the Indian diaspora helping that uh, dialogue very significantly. Uh, but there is no American diaspora in India as such in numbers which would aid that process because once Americans who have lived in India, worked in India, either in the embassies or in corporations like GE, when they come back they have a much better understanding. And to aid that cultural dialogue, will this be one of the conditions which will facilitate the process further or what are the other aspects which will facilitate the process of a better and a more profound and a deeper understanding of each other's interest to progress to the point where it becomes the defining partnership of the 21st century. Thank you. Danny? So here's a GE anecdote. Two, way, two, two weeks ago, if, if you caught news, uh, GE announced that our current president and CEO is retiring, Jeff Amelt, somebody who's visited India many, many times and is one of the big, big promoters of the U.S., India, and GE relationship there. In the announcement of Jeff Amelt's retirement, they, there was reference to the new president and CEO, a gentleman by the name of John Flannery, coming in from, health, from the GE healthcare business. And Jeff Amelt explicitly recognized Mr. Flannery's experience in India and in other countries as helping him tremendously in improving his, his offering as, as a top leader in the company and part of his progression toward president and CEO. So from an anecdotal perspective, your point's well taken, and it's playing out as, as we move toward a new chairman and CEO of, of GE who has deep experience and, and, and had a very formative time in, in his, his career in India. Okay, right here. Hi, uh, my name is uh, AJ Kutari. I'm president of Astrox Corporation, which is an aerospace R&D company, so I presume this uh, question might go to Pratyush. Um, uh, about space, actually. Uh, there was, during the administration, uh, W. Bush administration, there was a lot of cooperation between uh, United States and India in terms of, uh, I know that the administrator of NASA went to India three times at that time, and since then it has kind of declined. Um, and now, with the interest that President Trump has and also Vice President Pence has in space and stuff, uh, would there would that not be a good time to have more cooperation between the two countries? That's question number one. And related to that is that there's a lot of uh, um, um, commercial interest now in space, SpaceX being an example here in this country. So would there be a sort of a 
collaboration between the companies, two companies, also between the two countries. Thank you. Well, well thank you for that question. I think uh, space collaboration is one of those unfulfilled potentials that needs to be addressed. You know, uh, as you know, uh, ISRO was on the entities list for a long time. It was taken off. And uh, since then, there has been a concerted effort to collaborate, and of course, on the Indian space missions, both for the Mars mission and the Moon mission. There's a lot of collaboration with NASA that happened. And uh, even recently, just um, a few months ago, India launched 104 satellites. Uh, one on one of them were CubeSats from an American company startup, Pumpkin in uh, Silicon Valley. So, uh, and that also has opened up the door for commercial launches by ISRO. So big potential. I think it's the start of a new phase of cooperation between the two countries. And I think the new thing in the mix is the private entrepreneurs in the space uh, area. So with, with the advent of SpaceX and Blue Origin and a whole bunch of other space startup, uh, you know, the disruptive cost position that India brings has become in sharp focus. And it's, it's really going beyond just ISRO. It's going into a startup ecosystem, which is starting in India. There's a, a small team of very young, bright people called Team Indus. They're trying to put aircraft on the moon, but privately funded, unthinkable, right? And I had a fortunate, uh, a good fortune to go visit them a few times. Incredible people, and they will make a difference. So I think you're exactly right is we are facing inflection point where we can not only see NASA to ISRO cooperation, but company to company cooperation on the space front going forward. For those who don't know, ISRO is the Indian Space Research Organization. Uh, gentlemen in the middle, then we'll come back to the right side of the... Uh, yes, thank you. Um, feeding into that, that discussion, there are two sort of emerging concepts in, in, in education that I'd love to have a, a, you know, a reaction from, from the panel. One, of course, is the new focus here in the United States on apprenticeship programs, uh, which are coming uh, somewhat from Europe, but from all over the world. What, uh, what is the take in India on that concept, especially, I guess, regarding in innovation and the need to, to do physical work? The other is MOOCs. Um, I know the Far East, actually, is probably ahead of the United States on the use of MOOCs or the, the ability to affect the, uh, the innovation side as well as, as general education. Just thoughts on the the evolution of those two concepts um, between U.S. and India, and how might, how they might help. Let me just continue on that. I think apprenticeship is fundamental, especially as you look at the gap between skills required and skills available. Apprenticeship is is the the one bridge that can bridge the gap. I'll give you an example of that. So the aircraft maintenance engineers. You know, India has 50 AME schools. They graduate 7,000. AME engineers, and we looked at last in the last three years, only 150 of them were type rated. 7,000 graduated, 150 qualified. Big gap. And the gap can be covered through an apprenticeship program. So we are actually working with the Ministry of Civil Aviation and the airlines to create a finishing school and create an apprenticeship, apprenticeship program to close that gap. Very, very important. The second part of the question on MOOCs. You know, the new technology, the internet has democratized the curriculum. So it's available to everyone. We just saw a story about uh, a young kid in India <coughs> taking the open courseware from MIT and doing wonderfully well on that, right? So the, the, the whole content has become available, 
right? So you are at par at the best in the world. So the MOOCs is the way to really kind of drive that down to the unpenetrable parts of the country. So big, big change happening, uh, uh, happening as we speak right now. Okay, la last two questions right here in the middle. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Julian Kyle Lewis. I study international education policy at the American University here in D.C. And uh, we're looking at about uh, $9.2 billion in cuts to the education system program here in the United States. And that will directly affect the STEM programs that you all mentioned in areas of math and science, majoring in engineering and computer science. And what my professors are seeing is that once our students are graduating with these high-level degrees, around the world, they're not being as respected as they once were. Although they spent all these years in school, many countries um, like India don't really uh, respect the American scholars with this expertise because of what's happening to our education system. So uh, what advice do you have um, for students um, and, uh, in c comparison to the education system in India with the United States, what improvements could be made possibly? Anyone? Um, I, I, without trying to disrespect you for professors, I don't think you know, uh, the situation is as alarming as that. I think we absolutely respect the education system here. We are hiring here. Uh, my children go to schools here. Uh, and I think we probably are sitting on some of the world's best education standards and systems uh, in North America. Um, now, the, the, what one needs to be alarmed about, whether you're a student or a professor, is whether you're getting trained in skills for the future. Um, and, and that's a big bet that as both as individuals and as systems and societies, we need to worry about. Uh, just as much as there is skills gap that Pratyush talked about in India, and frankly, uh, we witness that fairly often and almost on a regular basis, uh, because we are also one of the biggest campus recruiters in India, uh, we see that skills gap happening in the U.S. as well, uh, where we are actually uh, running what we call as our internal apprenticeship program, where we hire people from colleges but they're not ready to yet get deployed uh, in, in the technologies that our clients want our, us to work on. So we run three to six months of courses internally before we get them ready. We also run a fairly large global internal MOOC program because we ourselves have 160,000 people, employees worldwide, and we train them uh, through uh, certified courses where we are offering certificates for them for next-gen courses. So if anything, I would worry more about what, I mean, what am I getting trained in and skilled about as opposed to saying, is the United States uh, going to be competent at all in, in the world of education? I, I, I don't think, uh, I, I think that, that worry is somewhat misplaced. Or perhaps embellished and exaggerated. Well, I, yeah, I would just add, look, I mean, I think the days of expecting that you go to a four-year college, graduate, and that's the end of your education and training for the rest of your life are long gone. So what you can hope for is that you're getting trained in the skills that will allow you to continue to educate yourself and train yourself in whatever is coming in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years, and that, that's really what you hope you're getting out of that expensive education is that you're, you're giving, getting skill, skills that will help you stay at the cutting edge and stay able to learn and, uh, and be inquisitive and, and develop over the next you know, decades. The body of knowledge is expanding, and so therefore what you learn needs to be updated all the time. That's what's, what's really going on. Last question here. Thank you. My name is Veronica Cartier, and I have been involved 
U.S.-India Strategic Security Corporation, and my geopolitical region is Indo-Pacific. So I um, involved with the think tank group here, Car Carnegie, also the, with the Carnegie India. We make sure that we focus so much with the security in the Indo-Pacific region and like maritime exercises and nuclear policy. Uh, the reason I'm here, I would also give one comment and one question. My comment is that I would like to increase how important it is approaching the Indo-Pacific island, especially Indonesia, that it is a very sensitive that Strait Malacca, Strait Lombok, that is very um, vulnerable for um, any destroyer to get into the Indian Oceans. For therefore, I would like to ask question, what is your plan for expansion for the Indo-Pacific region? Because it is a strategic approach to support their cooperation for military exercise as well as maritime exercise in the, in the um, Indonesian water as well as in Indian Ocean. So I hope from GE and Boeing and other um, involving technology or education, aviation, anything to support the security strategic cooperation, it's, it's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. I would say just one thing that, you know, uh, there's a huge convergence on that need. And uh, U.S. and India have been working very closely on that. And the biggest reflection or proof point of that cooperation is the, the maritime surveillance, surveillance aircraft, P-8I. The Indian Navy uh, acquired the aircraft at the same time as U.S. Navy. But that has never happened, launch customer. And it's giving them capabilities from... Strait of Hormuz to Malacca Strait and providing security. So that's just an uh, important part of that security cooperation. And I think uh, as you see more discussions about defense trade and technology initiative, uh, which is was started by former SecDef Carter, uh, it's largely kind of focused around capabilities in the maritime security. Uh, so uh, you're exactly right. That's something we've got to watch carefully and we're building on a pretty good success with the P-8 uh, program in, with India. And I think the, the, the announcement of the sale of the Defender drone, that's also part of, that's, that's also a maritime uh, security instrument, I think. So that's, that's, that, uh, that, that is part of the overall strategic outlook there. Uh, well, uh, before we close, I would like to invite Sumani Dash of the Confederation of Indian Industry to uh, speak and thank everyone on our behalf. And thank you all very much for being such a uh, interesting uh, panel. Uh, I hope that everybody in the audience has learned as much as I have learned from this discussion. Sumani. Um, thank you so much, Ambassador Hakani. On behalf of the Confederation of Indian Industry, I just wanted to thank our partners, the Hassan Institute, for working with us on today's program. 
and for the President as well to take the time to be with us earlier today. Um, uh, again, very special thanks to Ambassador Haqqani. We can always rely on you to conduct these sessions in such a skillful manner, but always with a touch of humor. So thank you for that. Um, also, big thanks to our friend Aparna Pandey uh, with the Hudson Institute, always working very hard and uh, a very great partner for us to work with. Um, also, um, of course, a huge thanks to our distinguished panelists. We really appreciate each of you taking the time to be with us. I know some of you have flown in, uh, of course, uh, Pratyush from uh, being here from India and um, Amar from uh, California. Uh, we appreciate uh, you know, all of your very uh, insightful comments today. I think when we were designing this program, we really wanted to get to the two-way nature of the U.S.-India trade investment and job creation story, and I really hope that's what came through. Um, certainly, I think from our point of view, I think we got that message across. Uh, we're very much looking forward to a very productive uh, conversation between Prime Minister Modi and President Trump today and um, a very substantive and outcome-oriented visit. Um, Prime Minister Modi did write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Hopefully, all of you will have a chance to read it. And he did talk about the convergence of interests and values between our two countries, uh, two very important um, words there. Also, the, he mentioned the combination of technology, innovation, and skilled workers um, really is what, going to, what is going to drive the U.S.-India partnership. And I think that really is at the heart of our relationship and something we're really hoping from CII to work on uh, much more. So thank you again for all of you for being here today. And uh, again, thank you. Well, thank you all very much.